Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. All right, last week we had the chance to explore what I believe is the Bible's most explicit verse concerning the doctrine of original sin. Uh, The passage that forms this doctrine comes off the heels of Paul assuring Christians that they have eternal peace with God through faith in Christ. But the idea of peace with God, when we hear that concept, peace with God, listed out in earlier verses, it raises some important questions. How did humanity find itself in need of peace with their maker? What caused the hostility between God and mankind? At what point did this enmity with God come into existence? These are the questions that someone might ask that is just hearing for the first time that you can have eternal peace with God. Well, why do I need such peace? When did the enmity between God and man occur? And these questions were at the base of Paul's teaching in the following verses. Paul taught about the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden and the imputation of his sin to all humanity. And he did this to emphasize the contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness. And this served as the foundation for understanding how Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith as believers, providing a remedy for the effects of Adam's sin that was imputed to us at the fall. And so there's a contrast going on, a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam, which is Christ. So the doctrine of original sin is an important discussion because today's individualism that is so rampant in Western culture, that is even more rampant in the United States because of our spirit of independence and autonomy that we have, it's informed our theology often more than the scriptures have. And so many Christians struggle to accept the concept of Adam's sin being imputed because they did not personally commit it. They struggle with this. They struggle with the idea that I am guilty of Adam's sin, even though I didn't personally commit the same sin of Adam. And consequently, they refuse to acknowledge the idea of federal headship or representation. And when you don't have a representative of both Adam and Christ, we have problems. As I emphasized last week, it's crucial to understand that this rejection of federal headship, this rejection of representation of Adam, that his sin is your sin, a rejection of this, what this does is it carries significant consequences because the denial of original sin ultimately leads to the rejection of the gospel itself. And I'll explain. When you reject the imputation of Adam's sin, you must also reject the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Okay, if you deny Adam as your representative before God, then to be consistent, you must also deny Christ as your representative before God. If you want to believe that you are the sole contributor of your sinful state, you're not having any of Adam's sin imputed, I am going to be judged based on only my own sin. If you want to hold that position that you are the sole contributor of your sinful state, you must also hold the position that you are the sole contributor to your righteous state, which obviously introduces several problems. Namely, that you cannot receive the imputation of Christ while rejecting the imputation of Adam. 
This is the whole point of Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's to show the parallel between the two and that Christ and the grace in Christ exceeds the fall of Adam. It exceeds the imputation of the sin in covering that with the righteousness of Christ. So when you reject the biblical doctrine of imputation or representation, you reject the core tenets of the gospel. You reject the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. And as a result, you are left without a gospel of grace, but a pharisaical religion striving for self-righteousness. There is no rest for you who reject imputation. You have not the righteousness of Christ imputed by faith. There is no rest. There is no peace for you if you have not the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith. There is only the law and your inability to keep it and the judgment to come. That's why the imputation of righteousness, everybody is eager to to accept that one. Okay, I'll take on the imputation of righteousness. That's great news. But you cannot be consistent with this passage of scripture and take on the righteousness of Christ by faith and deny the imputation of sin by Adam. That is the whole discourse of these nine verses. Today's passage in verses 13 and 14 comes as a parenthetical or an explanation for Paul's closing statement in verse 12. So if you guys look at your Bibles, you'll see what I'm talking about. You might even see them in brackets, depending on what translation, or an M-dash. You know, an M-dash is kind of bringing further clarity or explanation for what he just said uh, between verses 12 and 13 to 14. And we can see Paul ends the verse by saying, all have sinned in verse 12. And last week I explained that this phrase most certainly means that all have sinned in Adam's sin. And that was the context for why that was delivered in such words. Now, Paul is the master of argumentation. We've seen this throughout this letter. He anticipates the claims of his opponents that might say something like, how can you say that all have sinned if there was no law until its delivery to Moses on Mount Sinai? You cannot have sin without a law is what the Pharisees would say. How can you say that people have sinned? There was no law. But Paul is prepared in this passage to demonstrate the validity of his statement through the following explanations. Let's let's focus in here on Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him, capital H, who was to come. So verse 13, let's look at verse 13. You guys look in your Bibles. For until the law, sin was in the world. Fact, fact. For until the law, sin was in the world. Just blanket statement. For anybody that might be concerned that there was no sin prior to the law. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay, so let's let's look at this for a second. So Paul is about to make the case that although there was no law, sin was in the world. And we'll see the evidence and justification here in verse 14. His phrase, quote, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, often causes Paul's opponents to say, see, you said it yourself. Without the law, Adam could not have imputed sin to all humanity, right? That's, it's right there, Paul, come on. But that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is making a statement of fact 
that he's going to use to demonstrate his point in verse 14. So look at verse 14 with me. It says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense or transgression of Adam, who was a type of him, capital H, who was to come. So follow this line of reasoning with me. If there, if there was no law, then there was no sin. If there was no law, then there was no sin. If there was no sin, there should be no death, right? The wages of sin is death. But since there was death before the law of Moses, there must have been sin. In other words, if there was no sin, yet people died from Adam until Moses, people were dying then God is an unjust God afflicting penalties upon people who did not deserve judgment. So you can't arrive at that conclusion. There certainly was sin because if there was no sin, then death is unjust and those people must be resurrected immediately. What Paul is attempting to communicate here in verse 13 and 14 is that the claim for all had sinned, for all sinned. Again, I said that for all sinned in Adam's sin. He's trying to communicate that that phrase at the end of verse 12, is not speaking about individual sins. It's not speaking about individual sins that we commit against the moral law of God. Because a Jew would be really frustrated to, to, about this text. He would go, for all had sinned, but wait, how could we have sinned before the law was in existence? And this is the point that Paul's trying to make. He's trying to show it's not just the sin that you commit against the moral law that I'm speaking of. It's other sin and the imputed sin of Adam. And this is why he says, pay attention in verse uh, 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. That should be a shocking statement. Okay, many commentators believe that Paul is referring to infants here or the mentally disabled. Because you would immediately question, you'd go, well, again, if people are dying prior to the law, what about those individuals who didn't sin like Adam sinned? Well, there's very few of those. And who are those people? Well, certainly infants have not committed acts of sin, yet they still died and they were not resurrected. They still paid the penalty of death for sin. So how do we deal with such a thing? And this is why he's highlighting that death reigned even over those who did not commit acts of sin, but they died as a result of imputed sin. Do you, do you catch that? They died in miscarriage, not because they broke the law, but because they had the imputed sinful nature that was given to them as the offspring of Adam. It's the offspring of Adam. Now, why is this important? Paul is trying to communicate the strength of representation. Paul is trying to communicate the strength of representation and you better hope that he's right. If representation is strong enough to procure spiritual and physical death, then Paul is saying it's strong enough to procure spiritual and physical life in Christ. If representation is strong enough to send you to hell, then representation is also strong enough to send you to heaven. Representation in Adam is bad news. Representation in Christ is great news. Being born of Adam is bad news. Being born again in Christ is great news. He is our advocate. He is our representative before the Father. 
And this is why Paul ends the verse, look at your Bibles in verse 14, by showing how Adam is a type of him, Christ, who was to come. Specifically, Paul is highlighting the parallel of equal representation. And I would even say greater representation in Christ. Because Christ, the the power of Christ to represent his people is greater than Adam's power to represent his people. Do you understand that? There is a greater power. The resurrection of Christ is stronger than the fall of Adam. But you're both receiving representation in Adam and in Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that imputed sin was the only manifestation of sin between Adam and Moses. Like, that's definitely not true. And we know this is not the case. Sin was rampant since the fall of Adam. You could think of a few things pretty quick. Cain kills his brother, Abel. We know the Tower of Babel built in pride. We know the need for the flood that came and wiped humanity minus Noah and his family off the face of the earth. The world was saturated, saturated with sin. Prior to the flood, Genesis 6-5 says, quote, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. That was the state prior to the law. So was there sin before the law? Certainly. Ultimately, what does the law do? The law doesn't create sin. It simply exposes it. The law doesn't create sin. It shines a light upon it. It shows you that it exists. It's a mercy of God that the law would come in to demonstrate to us the degree of our sinfulness and how much we have fallen short of the glory of God. One pastor said, the law comes and shows the evidence of sin. The law says in essence, do you want to see if you are a sinner? Then here is the law. Go ahead and try to obey it. Why can't we obey the law? Because we have the sinful nature of Adam. Sin is not so much the activity. That's just the evidence of the sinful nature. Sin is the nature of every man born of Adam. And you don't need law to convict someone of that. There are many unsaved people who are living good, moral lives, maybe even better than some born-again believers. But they are still in Adam and bound for the lake of fire. Remember that all mankind is either in Adam or in Christ. Those in the latter group, having been delivered out of Adam and the penalty of eternal death, are transferred into the body of Christ and his eternal kingdom, end quote. Galatians 3.24 speaks to this purpose of the law. It says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Okay, the law points us to Christ. It prepares us for and points us to our need for Christ. The law is a mirror. When you read the law, children, when we look at the Ten Commandments, when we we read the law, it's a mirror to our own sinfulness. It's a recognition that we can't keep the law. This is why we should constantly be teaching the world about the law. The law needs to be shared among the people of the world so that they might realize that they can't keep the law and need someone who can. We need to have that alien righteousness, that imputed righteousness that we receive by faith. The central point that Paul is trying to demonstrate is that sin is not just an act done individually, but a condition inherited by representation. In the same way as that obedience 
is not just an act or righteousness is not just an act. It's actually a condition inherited by faith. And so there's beautiful parallels happening between Adam and Christ that Paul is attempting to uncover here in this text. You see, Adam and Christ both affected their offspring by one single act. Adam by one act of disobedience resulting in death and Christ by one act of sacrifice resulting in life. You could write an entire book about the parallels between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam brings condemnation and eternal death while the second Adam brings justification and eternal life. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, I'm gonna read it again. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, end quote. Amazing. So when we see, and I'll close here, that God has done for us what he's done for us, that we were incapable, helpless for doing for ourselves, this causing us new birth in Christ, this adopting us as sons and daughters and transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, freeing us from the slavery of our sin and making us new. When we see these things, we can have a greater appreciation for the work of God in Christ and that we have not the representation of Adam, but we have the immovable representation of Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this blessing of a message, the parallels that we see here between Adam and Christ. Lord, we ask that you would continue to teach it to our hearts, that we might understand and have a greater comprehension of your grace and mercy in your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.